As we do so, we're going to let our elementary students jump out into some continued worship and learning. So as they do so, I encourage you to reach out a hand to them. Yeah, either way. We're going to reach out a hand to them and send them with this blessing, saying, the Lord be with you as you worship. So would you say that with me? The Lord be with you as you worship. Before we start, a couple quick announcements here just to let you know about a few things. First of all, if this is your first time joining us, uh, we are so glad you are here. Quick few things we want you to know. One, there's a card on your chair called a Connect card. I know every church has got their ways of trying to connect with you and reach out. This is just a really simple way for us to follow up and say thank you for coming. If you fill out that card, really simple information, and turn that into one of our Connect team members, we would love to give you a gift of a mug for free as a thank you for being here this morning. So again, fill that out, turn it into a Connect team member, and we'll send you out with a free mug. If this is also maybe a time you've been joining King's Cross for a lot, a while and would love to learn how to get more connected, uh, we have something called a seven-minute start. This happens immediately after the service, just down this hallway, right by that lion. And this is just a way for us to share with you very briefly a bit of the story of King's Cross and how you can get to know us and we can get to know you more. But we take very seriously that you've given us already a chunk of your time this morning, so we don't want this to be an like an ambiguously long time, but just seven minutes, hang out with us. We'd love to share a little bit more. A couple exciting things that are happening in the church here next week. This is starting. First of all, we're going to have a fourth children's ministry room. You see, there's a lot of elementary school students up here. Sometimes we have as many as almost 20 elementary students back there, plus nursery, plus uh, pre-K. So there's a lot happening in these classrooms you might not be aware of. And because of God bringing awesome growth to our church and so many kiddos that we have back there, we're starting a fourth room next Sunday. So if you have an elementary student, we're going to have a younger elementary and an older elementary. So you'll be dropping them off in the same spot, but might just be a little bit of a different room. So I want to praise God for what he's doing in that, and especially for Caroline and her leadership of that children's ministry. Also, next week, we'll be starting new Sunday morning classes. This will start at 9 a.m. Dr. Butner will be taking us through a class on the Nicene Creed. And this is a creed that we speak here roughly a little over once a month. Um, Sorry, a little like every five weeks, I should say, is what I mean. Uh, So we speak this together. And this is what Christians have been doing for centuries all around the world, not just here in the States. And it captures so much of our common belief, not just one denomination, but what Christians historically have believed. And as we say this sometimes, there can be some confusing questions about what, what does that line mean? What is that idea? And so we wanted to have a class where we break down a little bit more in detail what this creed is saying. So if you'd like to learn more about that, it, it will stir up your heart. I think it will build your faith. Again, so we'll have that here at the high school at 9 a.m. to 9.45, just before our service starts. So that's, again, next week, Super Bowl Sunday, that we'll be kicking that off. So please join us. We would love that. So we begin this morning. You know that we've been in the book of 1 Samuel for the last several months. And 1 Samuel is a book in the Old Testament. Sometimes there's a misunderstanding that the New Testament is the book that's for Christians, and that's where we really see who God is. But the Old Testament 
is just full of these strange, maybe irrelevant stories that we kind of just want to skip through. But I hope you're seeing by now as we've walked through this book for the last several months that the same God that breathed out the message of the New Testament is the same one who breathed out and inspired the Old Testament. Has so much to tell us about who God is and his ways. And so yes, there are some cultural differences that we have to unpack at times, some mysteries and questions we might be left with, but we're seeing the same God drawing people into relationship with himself, all through Samuel, all through scripture. So from Hannah to Samuel to Saul to David to Abigail, we see a God who's after relationship with his people, and he is growing them, and he is developing them. I think this is what makes 1 Samuel so compelling for us, Because we're able to see hints of ourselves and our stories and our struggles in the midst of these people, right? So through Hannah and her challenges, David and his difficulties, we can see ourselves. It's a mirror for how God is shaping and developing our own lives. I think perhaps this is true and no, no, like more true than anywhere than the life of David and his suffering, this long season of testing that David goes through, where God tells him, you will one day be king, but this does not happen immediately. It's not a short, quick ascent to the throne. Instead, it's a long, heartbreaking trial. This is a difficult time in David's life, full of questions and doubts and suffering that he's walking through. It's a furnace of affliction. And I'm sure that doesn't identify with any of you in your life, right? Nobody in this room has ever been through a trial or a season of drought and difficulty. Nobody here clearly has ever wondered, God, where are you and what are you doing with me? Do you care about my life at all? I love this phrase in Jeremiah. It says, God, why are you like a stranger? Like, why do you just visit briefly and then leave? This sense, God, do you care about us deeply? We hear about your love, but why in my own life and circumstances does it seem like you're not around? And so we see in David, God is shaping him and molding him. And the question really gets stirred up, what is God doing in David's life? Well, we got to hear this too. First Samuel is not a meta answer for suffering. It's not like it's one quick band-aid that as soon as you read the story, all suffering in everyone's life makes sense. That's not what First Samuel is trying to do. And the more we try to give one pithy sentence that explains all of suffering, often the more unbearable our personal suffering becomes. There's no one line. There's no one simple explanation that grabs the whole thing. That's not what 1 Samuel's trying to do. Instead, it shows us, hear me, God in relationship with people who are suffering. And what is God doing with them? How God is seeking, challenging, shaping them. And if what we're going through today is unhelpful for you, maybe it doesn't resonate with your life, That's okay. Let it go. Keep seeking God. It's incredible how many other stories there are. David's story is not the same as Job's. Job's story is not the same as Hannah. 
And it goes on and on and on. So keep seeking his face in trust. But again, I want to see today that we have a God who's seeking out relationship with people, walking with them in their suffering. And even on top of that, we have a God who has come to suffer for his people. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're going to get there eventually. But open up with me if you have a Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 26. We're getting towards the end of this book. We only have two more weeks, I believe, that we'll be in this book. We're almost done. But again, if you open up there, I'll be walking through this story, drawing out some ideas, but want you to notice other details as we go through. So the story begins with betrayal. It says that this group called the Ziphites, they go to Saul at Gibeah, kind of Saul's capital, and they say to him, is not David hiding among us on the hill of Hakala facing south towards Jeshimon? These places we'll address a little bit more. I just want to pause and consider what's going on here and how it highlights just how difficult David's circumstances are. Just what a miserable time and moment he's in. First of all, you've got to recognize David has a relentless enemy. That Saul gets this news and he comes down with 3,000 men to pursue David. And if you've been hearing these sermons, it's like, again, like, didn't we just cover this? Saul pursuing David. He is a relentless enemy. And although David had been a faithful servant, although David had fought Saul's battles, although David was Saul's own son-in-law, although David has spared Saul's life before, still Saul relentlessly seeks his life. How exhausting this has to be for David. But secondly, see that this is a repeated betrayal. You might remember that back in chapter 23, these same Ziphites had come and betrayed David, saying nearly the same words. Isn't David hiding among us? So he's betrayed not just once, but twice by the same people, which shows me something. David's not a crazy man. Well, maybe a little bit we see in this story. But he knows you don't really hide twice among people that have betrayed you. But what kind of desperate moment must he be in that his best place right now is to go back to people that have already tried to hand him over to Saul? How much is he at the end of his rope? He's hiding among people that have already betrayed him once. See also that where David is currently living and hiding is a difficult place. It says it's Jeshimon. This is the desert of Judah. It's beautiful to look at in a photo, but a really inconvenient place to live. There's very little water here and very few roads that went through it. So it was an uninhabitable desert. Nobody really went out here. So it's a phenomenal place for David and his men to hide, but it's an extremely difficult place to live, especially for one week or months or even years. This is the kind of place that wears you down living in a desert. And this is the other part we need to see about David. This has been a long stretch of time that he's been waiting for God to intervene. If you remember, David was proclaimed to be king. He was anointed that you will one day be made king by God. Back when he was just a youth, probably a late teenager, is when he slays Goliath as 
Goliath is insulted by how young David is. So he's probably in his mid to late teen years as we first encounter him in 1 Samuel. And we know, spoiler alert, that David one day becomes king and it says he's 30 years old. So we have 12 years, more than a decade likely that David is in this season. Part of this has been with serving Saul and in his army, but a good chunk of this is no doubt with David on the run perhaps five to seven years that David is running for his life, pursued by a relentless enemy, hiding out in deserts with people that he did not choose to be his friends. Five to seven years. This is a long time. And if you've been sitting in a hard season long enough, the promises and encouragements become more difficult to bear. I think maybe why this is so much on my heart is I was just having conversations with people this week, and some of you as well, that you're in the midst of really hard suffering moments. And I'm just seeing people that it's, it's so long that actually remembering and hearing about God's kindness is off-putting because you're so overwhelmed by the suffering that you're in. And encouragement just becomes shallow, and promises just seem to highlight all the more the bitterness of your situation. Because the season gets so long, it's demoralizing. And so I wonder this for David as well. If maybe at first that promise, David, you will one day be king, really built up his heart, really made him glad. But how long did it take before that actually feels like a slap in the face? Yeah, 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 one day I'll be king. That just reminds me all the more how I'm hiding in a desert right now. That just reminds me all the more how hopeless I am right now. So the longer you're in a season of confusing suffering that seems to have no explanation, the more encouragement and maybe truths of God become demoralizing. How did Daniel, did they, sorry, how did David handle this? How did David respond? What was he thinking? What I love from 1 Samuel is that we're not left to be wondering, but because this is David, we can go elsewhere in scripture to really Read his journal, if you will, to get into his heart and see what David is thinking. Dakota Moe is going to be preaching next week on one of these psalms written by David. Really excited for that. But I want to jump very briefly into Psalm 63 and to see what is David really thinking in this moment? How is his heart responding? I'll have this on slides for you as well. I found this shocking. Hear this. This is Psalm 63, and it says in the prescript, this was written by David when he was in the desert of Judah. This is Jeshimon. This is the very place he is hiding. We don't know if it's this exact moment, but it very well could be. So hear what David says. First of all, he says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. Struck me as I read this that this desert that David is living in is, first of all, a metaphor not for his suffering. It's not like, God, see what an abandoned place I'm in. See what a difficult moment. Instead, this dry desert becomes a metaphor for his own longing for God. Lord, see how desperate I am for you. The main driving focus of his heart is more of a longing for God. 
David continues, says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of food, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Again, it shocked me that for David, I'm like, how are you not just looking at what's going on in your life and overwhelmed by that? How are you not stuck in that, David? How's that not the dominating point of your vision? But instead it says what I'm beholding, according to David, he says, is God's power and his glory. I've seen his greatness. I know how good my God is. And that's what's still capturing my heart and my imagination. So we're not trying to lessen the hard circumstances that David is in or that you might be in. But still the glory and love of God to David is a greater vision. This is still more compelling than what he's currently sitting in. This is beautiful to me. Let me go back and remember the glory and the beauty of God that I have encountered in worship and being his person, belonging to him. David continues, says, On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. That even in his desperation, there, there must have been in his inner being God upholding his heart. He, he must have deeply sensed, even with all my trial right now, I still sense the shadow of your wings over me. So that when I'm up late at night, what's running through my mind again is not my own situation. But as I'm laying in bed at night, running through my mind is you, O oh God. That's how hungry I am for you. I can't help but meditate on you through the watches of the night. He says, those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. So many verses like this in the Psalms that just catch us off guard, right? Glorifying God, lifting up his name, and then it seems like David just suddenly jumps into vengeance, but it's actually deep wisdom. That David knows that justice shouldn't come by his own hand. Lord, I give justice to you. That's why my heart can take refuge. So for David, there's not conflict between God of being full of love and God being full of justice. He sees those two as married together. We like to separate those in our day. Not so, David. It's because I know you are so full of kindness and love and faithfulness, you will bring justice. They're deeply married together. And that's a source of rest for David. I don't need to get worked up. Do you see what he's praying and sitting in? If this is helpful to you, praise God. If it's not, again, this is not a meta answer for suffering. This does not solve everything. We're looking again at God in relationship with one person who's walking through a very difficult, trying season. If you can gain something from it, praise God. But if not, let's keep seeking. There's more here. But perhaps, just perhaps, God is looking to make his presence your refuge. Can I say that again? I know so many people in this room, you are struggling with things in a massive way. But perhaps God is looking for his presence to be a place of refuge for you. 
that what you're most needing, again, is not answers or a clear timeline, but maybe it's him. Being with him face to face, knowing, God, I sense that you truly are upholding my heart. I feel right now how you are a wing surrounding me. So even though I don't know why this is happening, I do know that you are with me. And I find that powerful. This may be God wanting to breathe that into you. It seems that David did, in fact, need this reminder because he's about to enter into a deeper test once yet again. So keep going with me through 1 Samuel 26. We hear that Saul indeed does come down with his 3,000 men to seek out David. And David gets word of this and so sends out scouts to find out where Saul is camping. Then David himself comes to spy out where Saul is and his commander and bodyguard named Abner, where they're lying down to sleep. And, and David and his men, they catch a glimpse where Saul is laying down to sleep. And of course, it's in the safest place that Saul is sleeping in the middle of his camp, surrounded by his bodyguard, surrounded by his 3,000 men in his army, coming to seek David and to kill him. But here's the craziness of David. He has a pretty outrageous question to ask two men who are with him. He says, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? Get this. He's saying, let's go down, just two of us, into the middle of the camp of this whole army that's come to kill me and to kill us. This is an unbelievable idea by David. Why would you want to do this? You're literally turning yourself over to Saul. But this is what David has on his heart. Who's going to go down with me into the center of this camp right where Saul is sleeping? Seems like David has some pretty wonderful people with him. It's actually very likely his nephew Abishai who responds, I will go with you. We've seen this before in the story of Jonathan. Sometimes you need absolutely crazy, faith-filled friends with you, right? Yeah. People who are saying, I, I think God's leading me into this. And rather than giving you all the reasons why that makes no sense, they're just like, I'm with you. Let's do this thing. My heart and soul is with you. Let's go. Abishai's a rare heart like this. So David and Abishai, they sneak down at night into the camp. And they make their way through this army of 3,000 men, and they get to the very middle where Saul is sleeping among his bodyguard. We're going to see in a second how exactly they were able to do this. And they discover Saul sleeping right there in the middle of the camp with a spear stuck in the ground next to his head. And Abishai, of course, being full of bravado and bravery, he says, this is it. This is the day the Lord has delivered your enemy into your hands. Like, clearly, God is giving him to you. And he says, let me take the spear. I, I won't need to strike twice. I will kill him with one blow. What would you do if you're David here? How would you respond? Again, part of me wondered, David's been here before. If you remember, David has had Saul served to him on a silver platter before. And he restrained his men and let Saul go. Has he been kicking himself ever since? Has he been wondering, why didn't I kill Saul in that moment? 
He didn't turn. He didn't change. He's still pursuing my life. So if I ever get another opportunity to take his life, I am doing it. How do you think David will respond? Instead, it says that David calls Abishai out, says, do not destroy him. Verse 9 and 10. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And interestingly, he he wonders out loud here, as surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. Now you got to get how 1 Samuel is laying out this story. Here you have all this tension as David and Abishai are standing in the middle of this camp surrounded by their enemies and they're having a whispered conversation about the fate of Saul. We're hanging on the edge. What are you going to do? Are you about to die? Why are you having a conversation here of all places? It's also one of the ways for 1 Samuel to emphasize the importance of these words. That David here is wondering ways that God could work. <laughs> it might seem like, is this an excuse to daydream about how our enemies might die? Not exactly. Don't, don't go there. Rather, see, the key is that David is allowing his imagination to go and to wonder ways that God might solve this for him. David knows that God is not bound, not even by his imagination. It's not as though these are all the options on the table. He knows God is immeasurably powerful. He's not limited by my circumstances. So although I'm here, and this seems to be the most important and obvious moment for me to get revenge, I know I can trust God. And I know he is immeasurably able So let me wonder, what are some other ways that God could solve this to allow my heart to step back and say, God, you know, I can trust you. Let my imagination wander to stir up my faith. A commentator we often quote, he's been so helpful, Dale Ralph Davis, he puts it this way. Regretfully, we probably associate imagination with falsehood and fancy. I tend to do that too but faithful. You see that? Faithful imagination cannot be accused of that. In fact, one might say that faith needs imagination to pull out all the stops if it is even to begin to grasp the grandeur, majesty, and ability of Yahweh. So for us to step back and say that I know my perspective is limited. I can't see all the options of what God might be doing. So although my current circumstances are bewildering and confusing and overwhelming, I know that this does not define the ability of God. Who has been God's counselor? Who has ever given God advice? He's the one that made all things, sees all things, controls all things. So let my imagination run its course in faith that God is not bound by us or our circumstances. How else could he be working? that you let your imagination run and say, God, what are you able to achieve that I would never think possible? Hang with me. I'm not trying again to say that this is a meta answer for suffering either. It's not as though this imagination solves everything for your current pain and difficulty. It probably doesn't. But again, perhaps God is trying to draw your heart into a place of godly curiosity and imagination where you say, Lord, I know you are far beyond me. 
that even though I can't see over the horizon of my current circumstances, I still believe that there is a place where you can bring all of this to glory and to fullness. So even though I can't see there, that doesn't mean you can't. Just because I don't understand what's going on doesn't mean you don't. The God, even though I don't have an explanation for my suffering or their suffering, it doesn't mean that one day you won't weave all things together to a place where we all step back and say, praise be to God. You are worthy of all our praise. What I was filled with doubt about, now I see, God, you really are worthy of praise. I know it's easy for me to say that up here, and when you're in the midst of feeling blown away by challenges and suffering, that can be hard. But perhaps God is just wanting to prod your heart into faithful imagination. Maybe, God, you really are able to see things I can't. How should I let go? So again, there's also a deeper reason here, though, for David to hold back his hand that I want us to explore before we wrap up. David says to Abishai, don't destroy him. Instead, he tells Abishai to grab the spear that's at Saul's head and the water jug, and they both sneak their way out of the camp. This is when 1 Samuel gives us an explanation. How are they able to do this? With people that have been trained to not be fooled in this way, bodyguards who are giving their life to intervene for the king, how are they able to do this? It says God had put the army into a deep sleep. That God, once again, is protecting and guiding and providing for David. So David and Abishai, they get out of the camp with the spear and the water jug. They go up to a nearby hill. David wants to be close enough to be heard by Saul, but not close enough to have to entrust himself to Saul. And interestingly, David cries out in a loud voice, not to Saul, but to his bodyguard and commander, Abner. And he says, aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Probably early hours of the morning here, and they've all been a deep sleep, shocked awake, and Abner says, who is this who calls out to the king? Seems that David knows how to do good drama and draw out some great irony because he then begins to reprimand Abner for his protection of the king. He says, you should look around right now. Where is the king's spear and where is his water jug? Someone came into the camp to take the king's life tonight, but they weren't able to. And he draws himself out, even though David is the one to be thought to try to kill Saul, even though everyone suspects him of wanting to kill Saul, David puts himself in the role of Saul's protector and refuge and savior. Someone came in to kill the king tonight, but they weren't able to. So he challenges Abner, you actually have forfeited your own life for your lack of guarding the king, but I did. I guarded the king. As Saul hears this, he cries out to David, interestingly says, my son, is that your voice? David's not fooled by Saul. And he begins to list again, why Saul are you seeking me out? If, if people have incited you against me, then set that aside. If it's the Lord you think is leading you, then let him take a sacrifice. Why are you pursuing me like a flea out here in the wilderness? Saul is cut to the heart, it seems, again, because he apologizes again and says, I have sinned against you. He says, come back with me, David. Because you have valued my life, so also I will value your life. 
Maybe this was tempting to David, maybe not, but we know that he does not take this. Just because someone apologizes, just because they confess, doesn't mean you have to entrust yourself to them again. I think David's looking for actual repentance to show things are different. I'm not going to entrust my life to you. Let me see this fruit of repentance in your life. There's something here for us to take in. But David says instead, come, get your spear. Here is the king's spear. Send one of your young men to come and get it. I'm not getting any closer. I'm not coming back with you. I don't trust you yet, Saul. I've heard these kinds of apologies before. Then brilliantly, David says this in verse 24. It's where I want to spend our last bit. It says, the Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. David says this, then Saul goes back to Gibeah, and David goes back into hiding. It's the end of the story. But again, notice what he says here in verse 24. As I valued your life today, so may the Lord value mine. Do you see how David is not treating Saul as he deserves, but he's treating Saul according to Saul's value to God? Again, he's not treating Saul according to what he's done, or maybe the revenge that he desires. Instead, he's saying, Saul, I'm treating you for God's stamp of value on your life. Not for how I would like to or what I've seen or what you've done to me. I'm allowing my actions towards you to be determined by God's value of you. That's revolutionary. And he says, you are the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed. Now here's a catch. (laughs) Challengingly, there's only two people in the whole world at this time who were the Lord's anointed. One of them was Saul that he had had oil poured on his head, anointed. This is a picture of God's presence and blessing on him, God's chosen king over his people. But as Saul had rebelled and used his kingship for his own ways, God had anointed another king. David poured oil on him as well as this picture of God's presence on David, his blessing to rule and lead his people. So there's really only two people in the whole world that you could consider the Lord's anointed at this time. So David's really saying in some ways the golden rule, I'm going to value your life as the Lord's anointed because I'm the only other one. (laughs) So really I'm setting the standard of how I think my life should be treated. Do you see this? There's a little bit of David saying, I'm going to treat you as I desire to be treated. I'm going to value your life so that the Lord and others might value my life. How's this come to us today, though? How's this shape our own hearts and our response to other people? The brilliance of 1 Samuel, it's not just these these stories about kingship, but 1 Samuel is in the midst of scripture and this larger story of what God is doing to redeem the whole world. And 1 Samuel especially is stirring up in us a longing for the true and greater king. That that David's not the ultimate picture of what a king should be. He still has cracks and flaws, but it leaves us longing for the truer and greater king. That we need a king to come who will value his enemies' lives, not just one other person, but all people, who will value the lives of all people. That we need a king to come who's not just going to spare the life of his enemies. Don't we need a king to come who's going to give his life for his enemies? 
that will make him, them reconciled to him? If we see that we are God's enemies, don't we need someone to come to intervene to make us right with him? And this is the beauty and what's so stunning when we see Jesus. As we hear that he's baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, it should make us step back and say, here's the true anointed one. Here's the true king that we've all been waiting for. And what does he do? He gives his life, the anointed one, giving his life so that we can see our value. This is the extent that God longs for relationship with you and I. Maybe also it gives us pause in the midst of our suffering to say, I don't know why God is doing what he's doing. But as we just saying, I do know what he's done. And I do know the stunning value that he has for my life, even though I'm confused. You can't be crucified for me and at the same time not care about me. So it makes me pause in the midst of my question saying, you are a kind, good God, and even though I'm confused by you, I have reason to trust you. And doesn't this also, lastly here, teach us how to care for our own enemies? If this is how Jesus has received you and sought you out, giving you his own life, for the ways that we are offended by others, for the ways that we feel betrayed and hurt, doesn't that teach us something? God, if you have shown me this kind of love, if you've shown me this level of kindness, how can I hold it over someone else's head? Teach me to love them. Teach me to value their life even as you have valued my own. I'm going to invite the band back up. We can keep singing and being in worship. But as we do so, I want you to sit in those two things here with me. First of all, the statement of Jesus giving his life, how does that comfort you right now in your furnace of affliction? And secondly, where is that bitterness, that difficulty, that person that you want to consider an enemy? How might God be leading you to value them in a different way? Not because of what they deserve, not because of what they've done, but because of Jesus and his kindness to you. So in that, would you pray with me here? Lord, I found my own heart to be amazingly stubborn at times. That I pass you by, that I run by your word, that I at times even refuse the comfort of your presence and think that other things will be more satisfying. But Holy Spirit, would you come right now in your power? Holy Spirit, would you come right now as we asked in the beginning, to show us your everlasting love. We need to taste this, not just hear it, Lord. We need to know this. Father, I ask too, would you soften our hearts towards those who have hurt us? Maybe the way that we want to hold the spear over their head as we want to take revenge, God, would you hold our hand back? Would you restrain us? God, instead, would you show us that you've actually taken the spear for us? That you actually were crucified and killed so that we might have life in you? Lord, help us be softened towards our enemies in that. you all again stand 
and sing with us. We're going to go.